Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 6. We're going to read the first 15 verses and have the Spirit minister to us. If you don't have a Bible, it's on page 1655 in the Blue Pew Bible. I'll be referring to it, to the text off and on. When I did have cable, I used to love to watch those home improvement shows, HGTV, um, Extreme Home Edition, where those uh, you get that big reveal at the end, or Restaurant Impossible. I used to love watching Restaurant Impossible, where they take this restaurant and you think, how are they going to do anything? And then they come, they bring them in blindfolded and voila, you know, it's all new. And all those kinds of shows, the Property Brothers and such, all have this big reveal moment, right? Where they take off the blindfold or pull the, 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 the cover off the house or wherever, whatever they're doing. This big reveal when the owners come back and there's the new apartment, there's the new house, there's the new restaurant. Instantly revealed in all its glory, right? That's what you're supposed to get. You're supposed to get this, wow, kind of reaction. And I, you know me well enough, I, I do that sitting alone at home. I go, whoa. <laughs> well, that's kind of what this miracle is doing. That's the purpose of the miracle we're going to study this morning. It's, to, it's, it's the big reveal of Jesus. It's, it's the moment when you should read in the Gospel of John and go, whoa. So let's read and have that moment together. John starts, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples the Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not buy enough food, uh, buy enough bread for each one to have a bite Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. When they had had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who's to come into the world. 
Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This is perhaps the most well-known of the miracles of Jesus. It's recounted in all four of the Gospels for a very specific reason. And what I want to do is take a look at this miracle under four head, under three headings. What it means, what it teaches, and what it foreshadows. What it means, what it teaches, and what it foreshadows. First, what does this miracle mean? With all the miracles of, in the Gospel of John, as we have already said in the weeks previous to this, of because of all the miracles, all seven of the miracles in the Gospel of John, all have to have a specific purpose in mind. John picked these seven in order to show something. If you remember, the purpose of John writing is found in the 20th chapter and the 31st verse. And he says, so that, the, the reason I've done this, John says, it says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life. In other words, there's a threefold purpose to the Gospel of John. That you would know that he is the Christ, the Messiah. That you would believe and have life. But that middle section, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's what John is getting at with this miracle. The Son of God. The Son of God in Scripture is shorthand for God. That Jesus is God. That's what John is trying to show here. And there are some, excuse the, the metaphor, there are some breadcrumbs that show us that he is God all over these verses. Look with me at verse 2. It says there that a great crowd of people followed him. And a little later on down there in in verse 10, we find out that it's 5,000 men. As you probably heard many times, that that was just counting the men. There were women and children, so there were probably upwards of 15,000 people coming. When Jesus said he looked up and he saw these people coming, 15,000 people, that's twice the size of Ellsworth, Maine. The population of Ellsworth, Maine, times two, coming at Jesus. And the, the other uh, three Gospels tell us that this place where he was was a remote place. It was not a place close to towns or cities or hamlets. They were in the wilderness. In John, uh, in the fir- fourth verse here, we find that it says that the Time, the context around this miracle was the Jewish Passover. John makes a point of just saying, listen, when this miracle happened, it was right around the Passover. And that immediately brings us into the context of Exodus, doesn't it? In verse 3, we find out that here he was in the remote wilderness, and then Jesus goes up on a mountainside intentionally. So if we put this all together, you have Jesus feeding a hungry crowd 
in a remote location, miraculously, from above, in the context of Exodus. When you have that context for this miracle, Jesus wants the crowd to see. Jesus is is intentionally painting a picture. John is intentionally giving us this snapshot of Jesus so that we, his readers, and that crowd can make the connection between Jesus, what Jesus is doing here, and what God did in the wilderness with the manna. That's the connection that is being made here. That is what Jesus is intentionally doing. What Yahweh did in the wilderness with his people through raining manna from above and feeding a hungry crowd in a wilderness remote location, that's what Jesus is doing. And by that, He wants the crowd to see. He wants us to understand that he is doing the same thing God did. He is God. Through this miracle, Jesus is God. Jeremy Bowen, the narrator of a new BBC series on the life of Jesus, states this. He says, and listen carefully, the important thing is not what he was, Jesus was, or what he wasn't, The important thing is what people believe him to have been. Well, you have to listen really carefully to see what's going on there, don't you? The important thing is not what Jesus was or wasn't. The important thing is what people believe him to have been. Bowden couldn't be more wrong here, right? Not, it's not what people believe him to be that's really important. It's who he is that's really important, right? Now, you can believe that or not believe that, but who Jesus is is what's at stake here. That's what Jesus is proclaiming through this miracle. I am God. A little later in the gospel, Jesus will say this, uh, this statement that gets people up in arms, he says, I and the Father are one in chapter 10, right? He was continually, as a matter of fact, the Gospel of John, the reason why we offer the Gospel of John to new Christians and people that are considering Christ is because it declares this throughout the Gospel. Jesus is God. That's the foundation. It's very interesting that in the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right after this miracle of the 5,000, you have in Luke right afterwards, and in Matthew and and Mark shortly thereafter, Jesus turning to his disciples after the feeding of 5,000, and he asks them a question. Do you know what the question is? Who do you say that I am? That's the question. That's that's what Jesus is declaring through this. I am God. And then he turns to his disciples and he, by way of just keep this, this text, this miracle right here, is asking us the same question. Who do you think Jesus is? Who is he declaring himself to be? That's the core question. 
See, it's critical not what people believe him to be, but who Jesus really is. God become man. That's what we just celebrated in Christmas, right? That's, the, that's what we focus on, the incarnation. And here Jesus is saying it again, I am God. And that brings us to our second heading, our second teaching And that is what this miracle teaches. What this miracle means is that Jesus is God. That's what he's declaring through this miracle. Now, what is Jesus teaching about him being God? Well, I mean, it's very obvious. He's teaching that God provides, right? God provides. If you remember back when we looked at the book of Exodus from the pulpit here uh, several months ago, we noticed that the Israelites, God's people, were in, in slavery for 400 years. And that, 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 those four centuries had really enculturated the Jews, hadn't they? They came out of the Exodus, they came out of Egypt, but they were really enculturated in the Egyptian values, the Egyptian mores. And you see that throughout the, the wilderness wanderings. They learned about religion by looking at who the Egyptians worshipped. And they, so the Israelites came out polygamous. I mean, uh, not polygamous, they were polygamous too, but uh, uh, thinking that there are many gods. Well, thank you. They learned the lesson of slavery, to depend on somebody else and not God, didn't they? That's why when they were hungry, what did they say over and over again in the wilderness? Let's just go back to Egypt. You know, it was good under that. They supplied our needs. We're hungry. Let's go back to Egypt. We're thirsty. Let's go back to Egypt. It's tough out here. Let's go back to Egypt. It's hot. Let's go back to Egypt. They were constantly wanting to go back to Egypt because they had learned that Egypt was their provider. And one of the major lessons of the manna, if you remember, was don't depend on them anymore. Depend on me, God. Depend on Yahweh. Don't depend on them. I'll give you manna. I'll give you meat if you want it. I'll give you water when you need it. Don't depend on them. Depend on me. Depend on God. God will supply. Yahweh was teaching them that he was their provider. And here Jesus is teaching the same lesson. Depend on me. I will supply. I will be your provider, Jesus is saying. There are several specific lessons that we glean from from his interactions here with his disciples. First, if you look at verses 5 and 6, you see his interaction with Philip and Andrew, right? When Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, he turned to Philip and said, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Jesus is testing Philip. John even tells us that he's testing him, right? It says in the next verse, Jesus already knew what he was going to do. Why did he turn to Philip and ask that question then? Because he wanted to test Philip's faith. He wanted to test Philip's faith. Jesus wanted to teach that God's provision requires faith. Remember, Philip saw the wine being changed. Philip was there when the lame man walked. 
Philip heard about the healing of the nobleman's son. So Philip had more than enough information to answer Jesus' question in faith, didn't he? He had seen those things. Okay, I'm getting it. Yes, what are you going to do, Jesus? But his answer is much the same as our answer is, isn't it? Practical. When, when we're faced with a situation, what do we do? We look practically. 200 denarii, eight months' wages, Philip says, wouldn't even give each of these 15,000 or so people a bite of bread. That's our default position too, isn't it? Practicality. We always fall back onto practicality. You know, when we, when we ask, can we do this? Well, we, we say, well, do we have enough people? What about can we do this? Well, what does the feasibility study tell us? Well, can we do this? Well, how much money do we have? We ask the same questions that Philip asks. Now listen. For God to be able to come through for you, for God to be able to provide for you, you need to put yourself in situations where he can come through. Does that make sense? If you want God to really provide for you, you have to put yourself in positions where he needs to come through. Otherwise, it's not faith, is it? <laughs> you know the definition of faith from Hebrews 11.1, 1, right? It's being certain of what? You do not see. People, you have to put yourselves in positions for God to provide. You have to allow for situations in your life where you depend on God. It's God or nobody. And that's a hard thing to do. Now, now I'm not saying discount using common sense, using the brain that God gave you, looking at things, being wise and discerning. I'm not saying throw all that out. I'm just asking you, do you ever put yourself in a situation? Do you ever take a step into an unknown and you go, it's God or or nothing? Because we stay away from those like the plague, don't we? Well, don't go there. That makes absolutely no sense. And nine, nine out of ten Christians will even give you counsel not to do that. But for God to show his provision, we need to be willing to put ourselves in a situation of total dependence, of faith. And the question, one of the questions that that verse 5 foists onto our conscience is, do you do that? Do you ever do that? Or do you live the safe life of no faith, really, Because everything is known. Jim Boyce, James Boyce, the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church, passed. He unfortunately passed away from cancer in 2000. He wrote this. I'm convinced 
that if there's one thing that most plagues Christian institutions in our day is the thought that we can figure out the situation and accomplish God's work primarily by means of money. Money can be well used, but to think that the needs can be met merely with funds, this is debilitating. Wow. You know what Boyce is saying there? He's saying that to rely on practicality is spiritually stunting. It's debilitating spiritually. God provides based on faith. Now, not how much faith we have. You've got to hear this, guys. Not on how much faith you have. I mean, that's the, that's the heresy of the health-wealth gospel. If you have enough faith, God will provide. So hear me very clearly. It's not on how much faith you have. If you need proof for that, how much faith did Philip have? How much faith did Andrew have? They both were like throwing up their arms. Andrew, I see him bringing this little kid along and going almost joke-like, you know, Here's five pieces of bread and two fish. There's 15,000 people. Now, I don't know. I'm reading into that. I don't know how, where his heart was. No, God provides as we trust him and not our circumstances. Faith is doing And not simply relying on practicality. Many times faith looks foolish to the unspiritual. Have you ever thought about that? Doing something will look foolish to a lot of people. When you do something, when you intentionally put yourself in a, a position where God has to come through or nothing, that'll look foolish. And people will say, that's foolish, don't do that. Because faith is being certain of what you do not see. I can think of a lot of examples in the life of this congregation. I'll tell you about one. But I can think of a lot of examples as I was, as a matter of fact, I had two or three other examples here that I cut out because it was just too long. I'll tell you about one example. About ten years ago, nine years ago, this body sat in this room with one youth and said, let's hire a youth pastor. That made no sense. Absolutely no sense. Okay, Josh Williams will attend. (laughs) But let's spend five digits of income and bring a guy up here. Made no sense, guys. But do you see what God did? Here we are eight, nine years later. And there's 30 to 35 kids downstairs. Sorry. It's beautiful. We have a high school group that meets. He has provided more and exceeded greatly our expectations. 
And that's what we see here in, in the scripture. That's the lesson of the 12 baskets, isn't it? You need to have faith. You need to actually put yourself in a position of dependence. And when you do, many times he will exceed your expectations. Look at verse 7. Here Philip says, listen, eight months wages wouldn't give us a bite. But then you go over to to verses uh, 12 and 13 and you find that that Jesus had exceeded their expectations. There was extra. 15,000 plus people had eaten and the other gospels say they were satisfied so they didn't didn't have bite. They ate and ate and went, no, no, I'm going to pass because I'm full. And they, and they gathered up and there were 12 baskets. Great excess. On April's Fool's Day, 2005, Larry Hoffman, man who was living in, in Wisconsin at the time, went into Goodwill and bought a shirt and went home. When he tried it on, he discovered that the shirt was too small for him. So... As he was taking it off, he noticed that there was something in the pocket, a bulge in the pocket of the shirt, and he reached in and he pulled out $2,000 in cash. That's kind of the God we serve, guys. It's really a picture of the God we serve. We're like Philip. We're looking for, you know, just a cheap shirt, just something to cover... And God comes through in big ways. God wants to explode our expectations. Listen to that carefully. God wants to explode our expectations. Because so many times our expectations are so small. John Newton, the uh, famous pastor of, uh, in England... He's famous for, for being a slave trader and that was converted to Christianity, for being a pastor and a counselor to William Wilberforce, for writing great hymns like Amazing Grace. But he's also famous for something maybe you didn't know he's famous for, and that was he was famous at the time for his prayers. John Newton was famous for his prayers because he prayed what he called large asking prayers. When he was asked to explain what he meant, Newton would often cite the legendary story of a man who asked Alexander the Great to give him a huge sum of money for, in exchange for his daughter's hand in marriage. Alexander agreed, and when the treasurer saw the sum of money that he was about to give away, he went to Alexander and inquired about this. And Alexander said this, Let him have all the money. He does me honor. He treats me like the generous, rich king I am. We have to remember that that is the king that we serve. He is a generous, rich king. And many times we go to him and we say, can I please just have the secondhand shirt that's a little too small? I'll make do. Boy, let me tell you, Mainers, we do that a lot. Because we make do, right? I can't remember that, that saying right now, but some of you have it in your mind right now. Make do. God wants us to ask large things. He really does. Because you know what that does? That puts us in a position of what? 
come through or not. Puts us in a position of faith. We love to ask for small things because, you know, that can happen. I can figure out how that can happen. You can't figure out large asking prayers. Paul in Ephesians writes, I pray out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power. He's praying for the Ephesian church out of his glorious riches, out of all the riches, just bless them. King Jesus is rich and generous. We have to actually treat him that way. We do him honor (laughs) when we come and ask things, great things of a great king. And lastly, God provides in unexpected ways. This is the obvious teaching of this miracle. Nobody expected Jesus to perform this miracle. Five loaves, two fish, feeding 5,000 men, 15,000 people. Totally unexpected provision. And in that totally unexpected provision, we have the foreshadow of Christ. What this miracle foreshadows. Look with me at the reaction that the people have in verses 14 and 15. It says, after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they saw the 12 baskets, they said their bellies were full. They began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew to a mountain by himself. You see, the people kind of get it. The crowd, they kind of get Jesus. They kind of understand, don't they? I mean, when they say, he, is he the prophet, he's the prophet, they're actually remembering Deuteronomy 18 where God says in the great prophecy, I will send a prophet like Moses to my people in the future. And they're going, could this be the prophet like Moses? Could this be the prophet that's going to free us from Roman? And they kind of get it. They see Jesus as a king. And he is a king. They see a king like David who's going to to secure the borders of Israel again. That great king who defeated all the enemies once and for all and secured the borders. But as N.T. Wright comments, the reaction of the crowd shows that they understand both of these in quite an inadequate sense. They understand it partially but not fully. And many times in our lives, we understand Jesus in quite an inadequate sense, don't we? We want Jesus to be the prophet like Moses, who will lead us through hardships and impressive situations. Those are the foxhole prayers that we pray, right? That's when we realize Jesus in a quite an inadequate sense. Jesus, just get me out of this. And really, foxhole prayers make foxhole Christians. We want Jesus to be our king like David who secures our borders in life and gives us comfort and ease. That's what they they celebrated in David and Solomon's reign, right? We had great comfort and ease. Many times that's when we look to Jesus. Jesus, just give me a comfortable life. Just give me an easy life. Help me with this. Just give me that. 
in many of our lives, that's the extent of our understanding of Jesus. And that just shows how inadequately we truly understand him because Jesus leads in quite an unexpected ways. Do you know what made King George of England beloved to his people? King George uh, was the king during World War II. It was the, the king who was um, uh, in, uh, portrayed in the movie The King's Speech. He took the, the Britain through the Second World War. And you know what, why the people loved him? And they did. They loved King George. They loved him because he stayed. If you don't know, King George stayed in Buckingham Palace during the Battle of Britain. He stayed there after the, the palace had been bombed nine times. He stayed. He stayed with his people during World War II. Everyone expected the king to go into hiding. Everybody. But he didn't flee. George did the totally unexpected thing. He stayed with his people. The Jews, after this miracle, wanted Jesus to be their king. He wanted to lead them in expected ways. Kick out the Romans. Be a king like David. Be a prophet like Moses. Lead us out of this oppression. Usher in a new political state with the power and the comfort and the ease Lead us like that, Jesus. And Jesus knew their hearts. And he withdrew. Because he wasn't going to be that type of king. He was going to be a king that would lead in in unexpected ways. See, King Jesus didn't conquer, come to conquer. He didn't come to conquer the Romans. He didn't come to conquer the powers that be. He came to conquer sin and death. We don't have a king that just stayed with us. He did the unexpected thing. We have a king who died for us. He gave his life for you and me. And that makes no sense. 1 Corinthians one twenty three says, you know what that is? Christ crucified, Christ dying. Christ dying is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Totally unexpected. Jesus took the bomb of God's wrath for us and was blown to bits. He stood in our place. And he provides forgiveness for your sins. That's what Jesus came to do. And that provision requires something that makes no sense on our part. You have to have faith. You have to believe. You have to believe that Jesus was who he says he was, God, and did what he said he did, died in your place, took punishment that you deserve, and he extends out a hand of forgiveness and of righteousness and of peace, and of hope. 
And if you do have faith, what the Bible says is that you have a life that exceeds your wildest expectations. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. And I ask you, Lord, to change our hearts through your word that separates bone from marrow, it says in Hebrews. Do that for us today. In Jesus' name, amen.